Not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live according, not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. So far from the Catechism. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's interesting how words come into being and develop according to the culture or context of the world. You can think of a word such as selfie. A century ago, people would have been clueless in regards to what the meaning of that word is, and now it's not uncommon to hear it. Another such word in the English, English language that goes a long way to define the world in which we live today is the word upgrade. First used in 1873 to describe the upward grade or slope of a hill, that's not what it is used for now. It now refers to exchanging one thing for something better. You can upgrade your phone, you can upgrade your laptop, you can upgrade your coffee machine, your TV, your car, your boat, your house, your flight, your hotel. You could even upgrade your Tim Hortons drink by sizing up, adding a flavor shot or a whipped topping. There's so many more things that we can upgrade. But this is something relatively new. Although it is not as though this world, it is not as though the world all throughout time has had this constant thing that we have now of upgrade this, upgrade that in everything we do. And yet, the thoughts and desires of the heart that led to this becoming a part of our language are not new. We know that they've been there the whole time. It seems that whatever you have, whatever you want, there's always something bigger and better and faster. And whatever it is that you're interested in, there's always something new on the horizon. From TV commercials to billboards to internet and glossy magazine ads, your eyes are being opened to the ultimate thing that will fill your heart with happiness, that will make you fulfilled, that will leave you feeling content. Until, that is, the next good thing comes along. Advertisers call this the result of clever marketing strategies. The Bible calls it something different. The Bible calls it covetousness. The 10th commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
In other words, be content with the things that God has given you and do not lust after that which belongs to another. The 10th commandment, do not covet, directly prohibits us from lusting after the wife or the possessions of our neighbor. But the rest of scripture teaches us that covetousness is not simply wanting to take that which belongs to someone else. To covet is to want something so badly that it becomes the thing to die for, the thing that will ultimately make you happy, the thing that will leave you content. But there's only one way to be content, and that's not through lusting after the things of this world, but through the one who delivered us from the vanity of this world, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I preach to you God's word as he's given it to us in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet under the following theme, Everything I need is in Christ Jesus. So we'll look first at he is the key to contentment, and secondly, that he is the means to godliness. So first, he is the means to contentment. Everyone agrees that to be content is a good thing. When you are filled to your heart's content, that means you're satisfied, and then you're happy. All is good with the world, and you are at peace. But while, every, while everybody agrees that it is good to be content, what we do not agree on is how to be content. We may be told repeatedly that money does not buy you happiness, but many people still t- seem to act and think as though money and possessions are the key to happiness and the key to contentment. And in addition to the love of money is the desire for popularity to be recognized as the best at your game, whether as a hockey player or a movie star, a politician or a businessman. You want to be at the top of your game and keep on striving. The world's approach to find contentment is to strive and then to add. The world teaches us to set a goal and then keep on striving until we get there. And then that's when we'll be content. The world encourages you to get rich, multiply your wealth, get set up for life, and then you have the ability to get the latest and the greatest of anything that appeals to you. For if you do this, the world promises us, then your desires will be satisfied, and so you will be content. But the Bible teaches us something different. The Bible teaches us that contentment does not lie in the, uh, in the abundance of your possessions. It does not lie in your achievements. But your contentment lies in the state of your heart. In Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12, the apostle wrote, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. But while the Apostle Paul could, at the end of his life, say that he had learned in whatever state he was in to be content, for many of us, this is a work in progress. We want to say that we are content in every circumstance, but we often struggle with the question or not of whether or not we really are. So what's the answer? How then should we view the things of this world? Throughout history, there have been some people who have taken a negative view of wealth and possessions. Sell all that you have 
give it to the poor, and come, follow Jesus, some would say. But while some may be called to give up all their possessions for the Lord and his service, the Bible does not mean to say that wealth and possessions are in themselves evil. Nor does the Bible teach us that a real Christian is a poor one. Bible verses such as 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, which we just read, teach us that we may enjoy the good gifts that God gives us. It says there, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It is the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And so to like nice things is not wrong in itself. You could be godly and want a nice house or wear nice clothes. You could be godly and need to upgrade to a new phone. These things do not necessarily mean that you have sinned in wanting or purchasing these things. But the question is, is this what you think you need in order to be content? And are you able to be content whatever your external circumstances might be today or tomorrow? Can you echo the words of Job in, in chapter 1, verse 21? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. On the one hand, I would like to say yes. Yes, I have learned to be content. I am not straining for that which I do not have. And if I lose the things that I do have, that wouldn't matter too much to me. But on the other hand, I struggle with that. I find that our identity is so quickly and so firmly bound up in our possessions or in our position that we have within society, our families, or the church. And the world encourages us in this. The world will teach you that a house is not just four walls and a roof. It's your castle. And the better your house, the more you've made it. And the more you can afford, the more you should have. And the more you should build. And the more you should flaunt it. And doesn't it sound so much better to say, I own my home in Sardis than I'm renting a place in downtown Chilliwack? A $10 timepiece will serve just fine as a watch. But if you wear one that costs thousands Somehow it makes you a different person, or so the advertisers would like to convince you. As with the right shoes, the right brand of clothing, the right perfume, these things are promised to change us, to make us better, more attractive, more important. And one other thing that wealth does is it tempts us to be haughty, to be proud. Wealth means that other people will serve us rather than us serving them. They will be there to massage your back, to paint your fingernails, to shampoo your pets, to wash your feet. Wealth encourages you to find your sense of importance and feeling of contentment in the things that your wealth provides. And that is how the world grabs us. Just as Jesus was brought up a high mountain, shown all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and tempted by Satan who said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Brothers and sisters, 
so you are being shown the kingdoms of the world and all their glory through the television, the internet, and your own big wide eyes. And through it all, the devil of the world and your own flesh is whispering to you, all these things can be yours if you want them bad enough, desire them enough, and if they become your object of worship, and just imagine what they can make you. And so we feel the seductive pull of ungodly desire, of what the Bible calls covetousness. The word to covet has the meaning of to desire greatly. It's to crave for something you don't have or that you want more of. Now, the 10th commandment does not say that all coveting is wrong. On the contrary, there are many good desires to desire food and drink, a house and clothing. Love and respect is in itself good to desire to be in God's house, to desire righteousness, and to desire God's law, these things are very good. And God wants this from us. Sometimes we speak about coveting a closer relationship with God. We may covet someone's prayers. We may covet our husband or wife's love and attention. And in and of themselves, those things are good. But desires become evil when we lust after the things that God does not give to us, and when we have a craving for something that would not help us in our love for God and in our love for our neighbor, but would actually turn us away from them. And that can be something that belongs to a neighbor, such as a neighbor's wife, his ox, or his donkey, but it can also be all sorts of other worldly things. An athletic body, it can be health, being the top salesman at the office, or even having a boyfriend or girlfriend. When we covet something in a sinful way, we, belong, we begin to long for that thing to the point that we think we are missing out on life if we don't have it. When we covet something, we will want it even though it could poison our relationship with God or with our neighbor. To covet is to want something so badly that it becomes the thing to die for. It becomes a or even the driving force in our lives. And when that happens, what we effectively do is we exchange our love for God, for the desire, uh, for our desire, for the thing or the person or the position that we so desperately want. Yes, you may still confess your love for God, and you may still be coming to church, but what you have effectively done is you've removed God from his throne and put him to the side and effectively replaced him with the object of your desires, the thing you so badly want, the thing around which your world revolves. And that is why the Bible calls covetousness idolatry or worshiping another God. Paul calls it this in, a, in Colossians 3 verse 5, where he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, that's why God commands us not to covet. The sin of covetousness might not register as being very evil in the world, or even by our standards, but in God's eyes, the sin of covetousness is the same as the sin of idolatry, of having another God before him. Now I want you to be clear about what I'm saying here. 
There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. There's nothing inherently wrong with going for a massage or getting your toenails painted. God has given the things of this world to enjoy, and so material things in and of themselves are good. To excel in your work, to work hard and see your business grow, to prudently save and then buy or build a beautiful home, that can be good. To be poor in, in, is not in and of itself a more godly state to be in than being rich. And money is not the root of all evil. But what is, but what is the root of all kinds of evil is the love of money. In fact, somebody can be poor and have no money, yet be consumed with covetousness. We read earlier in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what needs to be really clear this afternoon is that it has to do with your life's direction. The career path you choose, the job you have, the place you live in, the friends you are attracted to, your life's dreams and goals, the way you currently spend your time and money, what do these things say about you and your heart? You cannot serve both God and money, but how easy it is to fall into the trap of trying to do just that, to serve both. So where are things at with you? Does your heart's desire, your yearning for contentment, tempt you to sin? Does your heart's desire, whether that be riches or prestige or success or a relationship or anything else, does it pull you away from Jesus Christ? Does it lead you to trust him less? When you do not get what your heart is craving for, does it cause you to despair? Does the bottom completely fall out of your world? What is it? Or perhaps we should say, who is it that is the key for your contentment? And we can find that answer in the catechism. It tells us that in, question, in, in the question in Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer says that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the key to your contentment. It's when you belong to him, you live in him, and you live through him, and you live for him, that your life will be full and you will be content. Hunger and thirst for him. Live for him alone. Set him as your highest joy, and you will rest content in him. And so, as answer 115 of Lord's Day 44 teaches us, turn to God and to his word. Turn to his law. Get a right view of yourself. Be humble and ask God to forgive your sins and grant you the righteousness that is yours in Jesus Christ. Pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit and strive not for the things of this world, but to be renewed more and more after God's image, to live for him and for his glory taking delight in his presence, 
for that is what you were created to do and that is what you have been redeemed to do. And then you too will see that everything you need is in Christ Jesus. In him you can find rest for your souls and in him you can be content. And that takes us to our second point, that he is the means to godliness. When Jesus Christ is the key to your contentment, then you will find your peace and your life in him. And that will change the way that you live. You will no longer be living for yourself, nor will you be living for and chasing after the vain things of this world. But you will be living for Christ, desiring to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. That's what Lord's Day 44 teaches us when it says in answer 113 of the Catechism that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But how can you live this new life? How can you be focused on Christ when the devil, the world, your own flesh are trying to pull you away from him? The fact of the matter is that in and of yourself, you cannot do this. On your own, you're unable to hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. Answer 114 says, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. In other words, the godliness that the Lord requires of us just isn't there. We've confessed this before in Lord's Day 24. The righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. We continue to be tripped up and trapped up by the things of this world. Even though we know for a fact that everything we need is in Christ Jesus and that he is our highest joy, we still find ourselves casting wistful glances at the things of this world. We don't always hate sin in the manner that we should. We don't always delight to do what is good. But that's not all there is to say. Because what we could not do, Jesus Christ has done for us. And therefore there is still a pathway to perfection. No, it's not through the law, not through the Ten Commandments, but the pathway to perfection is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the means to godliness. It's through him that we, his children, are declared righteous before God, and it's through his Holy Spirit that you will grow in, in him in all godliness and righteousness. And it is in him and through him that your covetous desires for the things of this world will fade away so that you will want to live a life 
full of godliness with contentment. As answer 115 of the Catechism points out, it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, makes us holy, and who fills us with the ability to love God with all our heart, finding our delight in Him alone. It is Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, whom He sends me, that my life, that my heart is changed, and my mind is conformed more and more according to the image of God. You know, in this world of constant upgrades, we don't need any more. And it's not an upgrade that God is offering you. He's given you something new. He's given you a new life and a new way of life in Christ. A life that starts with a changed heart and a new direction. A life that gives freedom, true freedom from the shackles, Freedom from the discontent and covetousness of this present life, and in its place, through Jesus Christ, you are promised true contentment as you find rest for your souls in him. And so turn to him, obey his commands, and take delight in him, not as a way to godliness, but as a way to live in the godliness that is already ours in Christ Jesus. Live in him and live for him. And you will find that everything you need truly is in your Lord and your Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.